0: I'm Josh Hammer.
1: I'm Emily Jashinsky.
0: I'm Delano Squires.
1: And I'm Inez Stepman.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, welcome back, everyone. We're delighted to have Delano back filling in for Ben. And as usual, we have a very well rounded show for you. So, Delano will kick us off. By talking about this terrible shooting in Jacksonville, Florida from this past weekend, as usual, as things tend to happen in the year 2023, this this shooting has been magnified and turned into kind of a national story. So we're all eager for Delano's take and all of our takes on that. And then we're going to go over to Inez to talk about Donald Trump's mugshot scene around the world in Fulton County, Georgia last Thursday. What are the ramifications for that legally, politically, all of that? Then Emily will talk about just the Republican debate in general. We didn't cover that in the last show. It was after our last show. So what happened in the first Republican presidential debate? And then we're going to totally switch gears for our final topic. I want to kind of step out, zoom out a little bit and talk about the three-year anniversary of the first Abraham Accord agreement and what's going on in the Middle East right now with the Biden administration, especially pertaining to Saudi Arabia. But let's start off with you, Delano, with the Jacksonville shooting.
2: And as many people know, um, there was a a shooting in Jacksonville over the weekend. Um, I I don't want to, you know, say the shooter's name and give him any sort of recognition that oftentimes these guys look for. But long story short, uh, the the gunman was white, shot uh, three people, shot and killed three people, uh, Angela Michelle Carr, uh, Anolt Joseph Liguori Jr., and Gerald galleon um all three victims were black um the shooter uh had a manifesto that was published online quickly uh, a racist manifesto where he used racial slurs and talked about this hatred of black people um and he carried out the shooting at a, at a dollar general store um in jacksonville um, so he uh, he took his life which i see as the coward's way out i, I would have rather the people of florida been able to meet out justice, uh, the type of justice that he deserved, um, but he took his life, and uh, quickly this tragedy, as is often the case, um, quickly uh, sort of morphed from being about the the victims and and the actions of of the gunman um, to being something about the state of our our country and particularly our politics, and and what I saw most sort of frequently was uh the actions of this of this government uh being attributed to governor deSantis um and and what people call his anti-black rhetoric. Uh, not very I don't think I saw a single example of what that rhetoric is, but my guess is that the Stop Wolf Act and, and some of the other things that the governor has done, uh particularly around, you know, keeping critical race theory out of schools and, and some may even say some of the you know, parental rights in a, in a sort of more broader uh, sense are what contributed to the environment in which this killer uh, took the lives of three innocent people. So um, th- this happened last year. A similar thing happened last year with uh, the Buffalo shooting. How again this was used to to paint the picture of uh, Black Americans living under a constant state of fear uh, from white supremacists and white white supremacist violence and white domestic terrorism. And this is what has dominated the headlines for the past couple of days, including a clip of the governor at a r- rally or royal service in Florida, in which he was booed by many of the, the people in attendance. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of the, the crux of, the, of this particular story. The, the shooter actually went to a small HBCU where he was, I, I think, identified by a student as someone who looked out of place. Security basically chased him off of campus and I think they alerted, according to CNN, they alerted a sheriff uh, that, that something was not right. So th- this individual, apparently lived with his parents, was actually the, the subject of a 2017 Baker Act, I guess inquiry, I don't know if you can put it that way. And, and the Baker Act is, uh, I guess, a Florida law that allows someone to be involuntarily committed. Josh, if I get the sort of the legal technicalities of that, please correct me. Um, But the sheriff said that he purchased his guns legally. So there may be some other things that come out as it relates to his ability to acquire firearms. But all that being said, uh, this is a tragedy. Uh, And and let let me, I just want to say something really quick because I want to be crystal clear. This is a tragedy because I believe each of us is made in the image of God. And regardless of the color composition of shooter or victim. When one person takes the life of another person, an innocent person, they mm-hmm. murder them, that is always a tragedy. But as, as I said, is often the case, these things are used for political purposes, which as someone who writes and talks a fair amount about um, crime, particularly in, in, in an urban context, and I see how many of the people who were loudest today and yesterday and the day before are typically silent when when you know black folks are getting killed in baltimore or dc or st louis i find the politicization of these types of instances loathsome and i find the people who do it to be uh worthy of all contempt and criticism particularly when they try to to pin this uh on you know a a politician without any examples of of racist rhetoric so i'll stop there because i could say more but i'm the first segment, and I want to, you know, keep my powder, so I'll stop there. Tossing so
1: quickly, the- I'm I'm not in Florida. I'll just I'll just quickly say I think you're making a really important point, Delana, which is that they have not actually been able to identify uh, Ron DeSantis's rhetoric, despite the fact that this is actually being circulated by Associated Press reporters. And as a colleague of mine pointed out, the Associated Press is set to host a Republican debate this cycle. So, despite mm. the fact that you have AP reporters directly linking Ron DeSantis to what happened, uh, they cannot identify any so-called rhetoric that makes sense to say this is a, a cause. This could an, in some way be a plausible cause of the tragedy. And in a former era, it would be shameful to point fingers uh, prematurely like that in the case of a tragedy. Uh, it would look exploitive. But in again, this time, this is something being circulated by the Associated press because our concept and definition of racism has become so broad that it's a political football. That is a consequence of the left's decision directly uh, to use it and wield it in that way. And it's really, like, I, I just never want to take for granted how disgusting it is to smear people uh, and to, to uh, point fingers at them in cases like this. I just think we should never, none of us here, obviously, but I just think we should never lose sight of how Truly despicable it is to implicate people in racism and in destructive, violent tragedies uh, without having clear causation reason to do so.
0: So it was it was Steve Peoples of the Associated Press, right? I mean, we should we should name some names here. I agree we should not name the the cowardly racist shooter's name, but we can name the AP reporter who was out with this story with with, with, with which is just disgusting. I mean, there's no better word for it, I think than disgusting. And Steve Peoples and his Co-author, fellow researchers, anyone who had this idea to directly blame the governor of Florida for this shooting, um, I, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot that I probably should not say, and I, I guess, I will hold to myself. But you deserve all the contempt you deserve. You, you terrible, horrible people, and you are the reason why trust in the media in this country is about as low as it could ever get. Um, look, there's a there's a lot to say here. I mean, first of all, I mean the fact that that this story has received kind of national attention. I, I, I obviously, let me, let me get the easy part out of the way first. I. I obviously strongly, strongly agree with Delano that every human life is worth cherishing. Delano and I actually both spoke at a recent pro-life conference together. I mean, he and I could not be more on the same page on that. And for that reason, the fact that each and every human life is worth respecting, I think only magnifies how insane it is that the media chooses to focus on certain stories and ignores others for reasons of politicization, period. I mean, why are we talking so much more to give but one example, of this shooting, I mean, there was a shooting earlier this year in in Alabama at a birthday party where 35 Mm -hmm. to to 40 black people were shot. I can't remember exactly how many died. I think it was between three and six people. It was was a terribly underreported mass shooting. The only reason it was not discussed is because that was black on black Crime And not white on black crime here. So it's just disgusting. I I mean, choosing what stories to cover because of of, of the race, the creed, the political ideology. By the way, also the manifesto, this manifesto gets released immediately. We're still waiting for the Nashville manifesto. That shooting now happened five months ago. We're obviously still waiting for again for just politicization reasons. So it's just disgusting. Uh, There's arguably no incidents other than mass shootings that the media consistently chooses to botch over and over and over again. And uh, yes, Steve Peoples, you really need to take a good, hard look in the mirror, I think.
3: Yeah, there's an obvious amplification. Um, and and it, it, you know, just like in other issues, when the media amplifies one type of tragedy over another without any context of the like numerical possibilities. Right. Um, and, and actually, this is something uh this kind of like numerical balancing game even the data is getting incredibly corrupted on this um, so we know that there are um white supremacy motivated shootings in the United States they're extremely rare we had one I, against a synagogue a couple years ago right we have um obviously the Dylan Roof incident so we have some of these these shootings but there's no context in terms of like okay well how 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 likely is this um you know, how strong is this kind of, of um, disgusting racial perspective, um, you know, part of of uh, the the murders that happen, unfortunately, in a country the size of of the United States every day. Uh, there's no context around that. And in fact, the FBI statistics around it are being completely corrupted as well, because they are now, um, every time they do an investigation into any kind of what they are calling, you know, white nationalist terrorism or white supremacist terrorism, right, they're breaking they're changing the way that they collect data so that a single investigation, um, let's say, into a, a cell of white supremacists or whatever in 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 one state, um, they're breaking that investigation into several different offices and counting it like six or seven different times, right? So um, whereas in the past, th- that would all be rolled into one statistic, um, one investigation. That's what allows them to come before Congress and testify that you know, white supremacist violence is up by, you know, several hundred percent or whatever it is. They, they literally changed the way that they're collecting the statistics. Now, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but there's no way to know now because they've destroyed our ability to collect data. Um, and and so, yeah, I mean, I, obviously each one of these, these incidents is a tragedy. It shouldn't have happened. Um, I'll be watching to see, uh, you know, how the governor responds to this in terms of it, it seems like it's so predictable. It's very sad to say, um, you can, depending on the race of the shooter and a couple of circumstances, like how the guns were acquired, um, okay. you can actually just write the media narrative in advance. Right. If, if the, the shooter is white, then it's a uh, gun control and white supremacy media cycle. If the shooter is of a different race, then it's a, a uh, gun control slash Republicans don't care about mental health cycle. Like you can write the narratives in advance, which, of course, is an incredible disservice. Just as a last point, um, I'm very proud that all of us here um, at NotCon Squad and, and I know we all write elsewhere um, are sticking to this. This uh, I think very, very important um, voluntary rule on the part of people who talk about you know these kinds of shootings for the media, which is not to say the name of the shooter, not to give undue uh, notoriety, because it it really is. I mean, if you look at um, the statistics, there basically media coverage does um engender copycats. It do, it is a part of the notoriety that's sought when people do these heinous acts. Um so just not feeding into it, I think um I'm just proud to to be at places where everyone understands that and um does do does our small part, right, um in not amplifying this this the name of this as DeSantis called him scumbag.
0: All right. Well um Inez let's toss it right back to you to talk about the Trump arrest and mugshot in Georgia.
3: Yeah, so um, this is you know the mugshot around the world. Uh, nobody is better at branding uh, and and memeing than Donald Trump. Um, this is a, a fantastic mugshot. I myself bought the uh, New York Post uh, edition with with the mugshot on the front uh, for posterity to save. Um, uh, obviously, this this attempt, the fact that he was arrested and and um, Printed and 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 get this mugshot was taken at all was obviously an attempt to humiliate him, um, as he said in another very funny post. Um, he's back on point in terms of that. Uh, another very funny post uh, on his his what is it Truth Social saying? Um, yeah, I'm really I'm I'm really a flight risk. You know, I'm I'm. It's not like anyone, everyone in, in the country recognizes me. It's not like I I fly on a plane with the word Trump painted on the side. Um, I'm definitely you know a flight risk. So the point of this was to humiliate Trump um, and to sort of drag him through the both physical and digital public square, that was completely defeated by this this mugshot. In fact, all of the seemingly pre-written articles about it that had to fill in the mugshot, I mean, uh, just, just ended up looking very foolish, I think. Um, so, uh, I mean, in terms of branding, very well played by Trump. Um, in terms of the larger issues here, obviously, this is Yet another uh, new low we tire of talking about uh, the, the the dangers of arresting the former president and likely uh, Republican opponent to the current uh, the current occupant of, of the White House. Right. Uh, Joe Biden tweeted on that vein, tweeted something quite disgusting. Right. Um, exactly at the time that Trump was known to be getting booked uh, in Georgia. He tweeted a propos of nothing. It's, na- it's a nice time to give to my campaign, um, which is just the kind of blithe and And, you know, he's obviously he's he's insisting there's nothing political. Um, This is not a political decision. Uh, He had nothing to do with this decision. And then he's tweeting about, you know, fundraising um, for his campaign while his opponent, his potential opponent, um, if if polls are correct, is being booked in in a state jail. Now, um, this case could be more of a problem for Donald Trump simply because it's a state case. It means that he can't. Mm he can't pardon himself on this one. Uh, in fact, the governor can't pardon him either. There is a a particular pardoning mechanism um, in the state of Georgia. It involves, uh, I believe, a board of, of several people already appointed. Um, so there's no direct route to pardon Trump if he gets convicted on these charges. I think that the charges themselves are are quite weak. It's like somebody um, tried to charge like. A conspiracy case, uh, but then slapped it under Rico. Um, the 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 point is usually you don't have a uh <laughs> you, usually you have a an obvious crime, right um and and Willis's problem is she doesn't really have an obvious crime for this organization to be organized around right the the idea of challenging an election or keeping Donald Trump in power that is not a crime. um, so what she has is basically um, a, a number of small level crimes that she can't potential crimes, at least that she can't really connect to Trump that she's trying to build into this larger case. Right. There was there was some like hacking of a, a voter machine. There was potentially intimidation um, of, of one of these these employees that was working with the vote tallies. I, I don't know the, the truth of or falsity of those charges, but as you know, written by the indictment, um, which is the most favorable, of course, uh, summation of the facts to the prosecutor. Those appear they could have been crimes, but there's no real nexus between them and Donald Trump and some of these higher value defendants. Um, So it it seems like it's just sort of smacked together uh, under RICO because it's just a sort of a lot of nebulous. It allows that structure, allows the prosecutor to then list a lot of things, obviously not crimes, like (laughs) because they're supposedly in furtherance of this larger crime that isn't a crime of challenging an election, Um, like Donald Trump tweeting that people should watch One America News Network. Um, That's actually a count under the indictment. It's a uh, evidence point in the indictment, right? Uh, That's obviously not a crime. There are huge implications for free speech uh, involved in this, just as there were in the Doug Mackey case, which involves uh, some of the same statutes. And um, I'm sorry, that was the federal one. I'm getting confused here. There's so many Donald Trump indictments. no, but there's obviously some free speech implications here. This is the heart of political speech, the the right to for Donald Trump to believe that he lost a rigged election and to to do, may take all legal means to challenge that. Um, that's that's not a crime. Um, so if there were individual crimes committed, they should have broken those out and charged them. Um, in any case, we've as we've said many times, this is this is the RICO and I'm running out of time here. So um, I'll kick it out to everybody. Sorry I took so long to summarize this, but it it, it does have that here we go again across the Rubicon sort of feel to it.
2: Well, I, I could jump in real quick. One of the things I saw in Atlantic piece, uh, I can't remember the title, but I'm paraphrasing the the sentiment. It was basically, you know, the mugshot was meant to humiliate Trump, and now he's turned it against us, and that's not fair. Uh, so I, I heard someone say that, you know, the, the mugshot on a T-shirt is, you know, may end up being for conservatives what what the Che Guevara shirt is for, for Marxists and liberals. So, uh, you know, we'll 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 see about that. And I will I will add this other piece that that sort of entered my ecosystem. It was the notion by some Trump surrogates uh, that this mugshot and and the unfairness of the criminal justice system towards the president. Uh, is somehow going to help him capture a larger percentage of the Black vote. I, I found that to be um, mildly insulting, but but also quite ironic, because some of the very people who are complaining about it are also the ones who see, quote-unquote, criminal justice reform as one of the top two or three ways to reach Black audiences. So uh, I think those chickens have come home to roost. Uh, and it was interesting seeing people... Who say first step act is really about our community now backing away uh, when someone else drew the logical conclusion that that the mistreatment of Trump in the criminal justice system will help him, you know, uh, attract more black voters.
0: So I'm I'm really happy you went there, Delano, because that's actually where I was planned to go as well. I I think this is so outrageous. I mean, this was like the talking point that I saw from certain circles all of this past weekend. Um, You know, Jesse Waters, frankly, did a monologue earlier this week, uh, effectively trying to make this point, which is that the fact that Donald Trump has his mugshot, you know, helps him be more relatable to to, to black voters. I mean, that's disgusting. I I mean, like uh, that's like cartoonishly racist. I mean, like I I can't believe the fact that we have people trying to say that. And yes, of course, that was half the impetus for the First Step back, which was a horrific piece of legislation that never in a million years should have been passed. And I opposed it from day one. And I hope that it is repealed under the next Republican administration. But that was ridiculous. Real quick, because we're running short on time here, and Emily needs to get a word in. I will just say that as someone who is a fairly open supporter of Ron DeSantis, I still couldn't take my eyes away from this mugshot when I saw it come across the Fox News. I just, I was just staring at it. I mean, like it is, it was just, it was blindingly obvious in that very moment that we were looking at an iconic photo in American history, for better or as the case may be, for worse. And, um, you know, cynically speaking, I think Trump was absolutely right to make this his grand return to Twitter X, whatever we're calling it and try and try to fundraise off of it.
1: I think it was Jesse Kelly who said the left is cheering because they've had a president arrested however many times now and they might get him locked up and the right is cheering for a mugshot. And that's sort of a sad commentary on the contrast, uh, which I understand. That is to say, though, uh, I also don't think underestimating the cultural power of the mugshot is wise. Uh, I think there's probably if for people who are concerned about the weaponization of government, not to say they're concerned about Trump as a candidate, but this broader question of weaponization of government, then uh, I think there is something to cheer when it comes to this mugshot. I was expecting him to smile. Uh, there are many mm. celebrities have have done the smile successfully in their mugshot over the years, and once again, I think Trump knew best when it came to the aesthetics here because that grimace, um, I think, was a much better choice than the smile because it, in some ways, conveys the the seriousness of the moment. Um, so, I mean, this is this is a really powerful image. Uh, obviously, it's a really po- powerful image. I think he made the wise choice to go with a more more serious uh look but that wasn't what i was expecting so you know it's it's if you're concerned about weaponization of government yeah let's be aware of the contrast that people are cheering for a mugshot but hey that mugshot still got power too
0: all right so for our second straight self-transition emily do you want to talk about the republican presidential debate
1: yeah of course last week we taped That before the debate had taken place, and nobody really knew what to expect. We knew that Donald Trump likely would not show up, uh, but nobody knew basically how that would translate into the actual affair itself. Uh, That was held in Milwaukee, not far from where I grew up. It was a Fox News host debate with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. It's sort of been analyzed to death at this point, uh, but I'm curious to sort of put this in the NatCon context and to get all of our takes on it. First thing I will say is that. There's nothing that can happen in a debate that is going to seriously eat away into the margin of a 40 points, a leader who is up by 40 points. Uh, I've seen Steve Doocy since the debate say things like, you know, you've seen other people's numbers fluctuate in certain polls. So people are I think he used the phrase shopping. Uh, that might be true for a, a small number of voters. We have no evidence so far that that is going to be a large number of voters. Uh, and so when the guy who's up by 40 points isn't in the room and the media is covering the debate like it's the Olympics, uh, you're really covering JV. It's like it it would be like covering the uh, second tier Republican debate in the 2016 cycle as though it was the only debate that was happening (laughs) Uh, when, in fact, it was basically everyone was in the second tier. I thought it was actually really smart of Governor DeSantis to understand that there was no reason to take risks in that debate because a debate no matter how much the Beltway wants to treat it as uh, the Super Bowl, is go- no debate is going to eat into a 40-point margin. So why take risks? Vivek knew he had to take risks. That's kind of his thing. He ended up getting successfully the second, amount, uh, second highest amount of uh, speaking time at the two-hour debate. So he did basically exactly what he needed to do uh, for his campaign strategy. And, uh, you know, Nikki Haley had some moments. Tim Scott really faded into the background despite putting a lot of his eggs in the debate basket. And uh, overall, Chris Christie didn't have the moment he was looking to have. I mean, it was just it it was interesting to see them talk about some of these things. Mike Pence had a really telling exchange with Vivek, whatever you think of Vivek, when Mike Pence said, you know, the American people basically need a government that's just as good as them um, and things are fine and et cetera, et cetera. I think that was really telling and a bad look. Uh, I think Mike Pence had, that was one of two of his very telling moments uh, in the debate. I would say the other um, it is when he, um, I'm having a Rick Perry moment. <laughs> I think there were two and now I can only think of what. Um, I'll think of it as you guys talk and I'll probably add it to my final thoughts, um, but it, anyway, it was just a whimper. You know, th- There was nothing that like really changed the outcome. It's interesting for Beltway purposes to sort of see the contrast. Trump is you know, up by 25, 26 points in Iowa. Um, even if he were to lose Iowa, he's still up by a big margin everywhere else. It's possible someone else can, can roll in. I wouldn't rule that out at all. Um, but I don't think this debate seriously changed the game uh, despite the huge amount of press coverage that it understandably got.
3: Uh, just real brief points because I want to be quick this time since so I took the time from everybody else last segment. Um, th- now, I don't think Trump was ever going to get on this debate stage, but now, given his indictments, uh, he really can't get on a debate, debate stage with Mike Pence. Mm. Uh, anything he says to Mike Pence could be intimidation of a witness. Um, that just underscores the ridiculousness of having the Republican frontrunner under indictment. Um in, in this, like, highly politicized, obviously politicized way, uh, 12 million, I, I might disagree slightly with Emily. You know, 12 million is a pretty good number. I, I'm surprised by how many people tuned into this. Um, to me, it suggests that there is um, perhaps some soft, like, as in that the there are a lot of people saying Trump in polls, but who are potentially persuadable. Um, it suggests that. I don't know if it's true or not, but um, we'll we'll have to see when people actually start voting. I just it's interesting that you would have think that the JV debate would not pull this kind these kinds of numbers. And it ended up pulling. Um, and by the way, we know that, of course, like the numbers for the interview, which we, we can talk about if you want. But uh, maybe I will in closing thoughts interview with Trump. I mean, it, it didn't draw 220 million views or whatever it is. Right. That's just the people who, who paused and they're scrolling. Um and then, yeah, just to highlight what Emily said, that morning in America exchange, I thought was extremely um, a generational divide showing there right between sort of regular boom, boomer cons where we just swap out the guy at the top. One weird t- trick. Um, we're, we're back to 1983 morning in America.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. So look, I, I I mean, this debate happened by the time this episode comes out like a week ago. It has been kind of analyzed to death. But I guess, you know, it's worth talking about some things just from a kind of a purely NatCon perspective. Um, uh, the Ukraine exchange was 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 very telling to me. Um, now, I, I, I hate Vivek Ramaswamy with a fiery passion. I hope that he bows out of the race tomorrow. Um, I will say my fuller thoughts on that. You can check out my my recent kind of podcast where I just teed off in the various ways this guy's a two-bit swindler and con artist and not fit for anyone's vote. But having said all that, I thought he totally dominated the Ukraine exchange. I thought that Ron DeSantis, who was my preferred candidate, made a terrible error by seating kind of the realist terrain to Vivek, who I think actually acquitted himself just fine. Um, in that exchange with, with Haley, I mean Haley got a slight bump in the polls. You know, she's not going to go anywhere. I saw Matt Lewis of the Daily Beast, who, who who wrote a column basically saying that Nikki Haley is now a serious threat to Donald Trump. I mean, you know, in what planet? are I mean, I, I I'm not sure what to say to that. Like, I literally am not sure what to say to someone who is so palpably disconnected from anything remotely resembling reality. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that was that was disappointing to me. Was kind of just kind of the rise of the boomer cons when it came to the Ukraine issue in particular, and then kind of just more generally speaking, you know, uh, uh, Patrick T. Brown, uh, Pat Brown of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I, I you know I, I get his newsletter and his newsletter that came out on Friday. He made a very astute point, which was not just foreign policy, but really just kind of domestic policy, political economy, all of that the talking points in the exchanges from the candidates was almost like nothing had happened over the past 8 years it was kind of like a a, a time a, a a time machine back to 2015 2014 and kind of the pre-gilded escalator at Trump Tower days where you know there was definitely no there, there was seemingly no kind of mention of anything pertaining to kind of you know trade realism manufacturing supply chain reshoring kind of deglobalization nationalization more generally right and many of the themes that have pervaded much of this show over the past few years unfortunately i think we're largely missing from that debate stage i guess we will see if it comes up in future debates but i certainly hope that it does
2: yeah the the debate was interesting because obviously the the contrast of personalities and and um and even you know with respect to sort of the the natcom movement it's clear that a lot of these candidates don't know what time it is. I'm not even sure someone them know what year it is for that, for that matter, just the way that they talk about some of these issues. Um, so, you know, I say, and other people have made this point, you know, the, L- I think introduced himself to the country at large. And I think he did that in a fairly effective manner by being sort of the young scrappy upstart candidate, him sort of mimicking Obama in terms of the kid with the funny name stuff. I don't know if that was the best strategy, but, but I do think he, he has some of those Obama sort of qualities, the soaring rhetoric, the young family, the dynamism as compared to, to his opponents. Um, but then there's also the sense or the questioning on behalf of the voters, is this person for real, or is this person selling me snake oil? And it is extremely difficult, um, to be the type of candidate who can, Speak in aspirational terms, and also come off as being authentic to people. Um, it is a very very difficult needle to thread. Uh, but in, in terms of a few issues, one thing I was I was just just give my own policy portfolio to hear a talk about the importance of the nuclear family, uh, vis-a-vis education and sort of more generally in terms of social policy was good. I thought the the abortion segment of the debate was probably the weakest for many of the candidates. When Nikki Haley says she was pro-life because she's had difficult pregnancies and her husband was adopted, I didn't necessarily think that was the best way to go. Um, but but it's clear that you know after Trump, even outside of the former president, there aren't that many viable candidates, at least from my perspective, in terms of my sense of what con- the conservative base of voters are looking for right now. And then the last thing I'll say is this: the fact that Fox the moderators asked a more specific question about UFOs than sort of the rise of the trans cult and gender ideology is extremely telling. Um, again, talk about people who can't, can't read the rule or in the moment. Um, so, so those are just some of the few things that I took away from the debate.
1: And just lastly, I remember what I was thinking of uh, Rick Perry style, and it was that Mike Pence said Vivek didn't have the experience, blah, 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 uh, to be in charge. And again, I just, I'm not saying that that argument is wrong. I'm just saying if you sort of sanctimoniously present that to voters and not realize that they're going to be sort of appalled by it and maybe even offended by it after they elected a reality TV star host or Celebrity Apprentice and stand by him, uh, then again, you're just missing the moment. And I thought that was another really telling moment. So with that, uh, I guess it's back to you, Josh.
0: Yeah, and really just to very briefly tie a bow on this, I'm happy you mentioned the UFO question, Delano, which I had mercifully totally forgotten about. But um, yeah, that was not a well-moderated debate. Um, and um, I, I like Brett or Martha McCallum. I think they're both solid professionals. But I, I man, I, I hope that the next few debates hit on some more of the issues that really do matter to voters. Anyway, um, let's make a fairly hard transition here. So I want to zoom out for this final segment and, and kind of go a foreign policy route, so a real kind of plot twist compared to our three prior segments here. So earlier this month, I think it was August 13th, was the three year anniversary, not of the actual formal White House lawn ceremonial signing and all that, but of the actual verbal informal agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, which was the first of what will become the numerous Abraham Accord peace agreements. Bahrain joined soon thereafter, Morocco then joined soon thereafter, Sudan kind of sort of joined. The Sudanese government is a bit of a mess, I think that's still a bit of a work in progress. Anyway, so early this, early this month was the three-year anniversary of that. I, I had Arya Lightstone on my own Newsweek podcast to talk about it. So Aryeh Lightstone was uh, working in the U.S. Embassy in Israel, he was like, the number two under the ambassador David Freeman there. He was deeply instrumental in the accords and he had a whole book come out last year about it. and that's the main kind of thrust of our conversation which is kind of the real conversation in in foreign policy or at least in middle east foreign policy circles these days is saudi arabia and the Biden administration has been working a lot in recent months to try to get the saudis to join the abraham Accords. the saudis are the most important sunni muslim country the most important arab country for fairly obvious reasons they are they are the custodians of, of all of islam's holiest sites uh, Mecca, Medina, um, they are a very wealthy country. Um, they, I mean, I mean, the term Arab obviously comes from the Arabian Peninsula. They are, it really is the Saudis. And the thinking is that if you get the Saudis to, to follow the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Moroccans, if you get the Saudis on board with formal peace with, with Israel, then all these other Arab countries will necessarily fall in line. Now, uh, it's kind of tragic to kind of think of having this conversation from one perspective, because I I heard from, I I won't name names, but I heard from a friend who was fairly active on the Abraham Accords himself. It was not Ariel Lightstone, it was someone else. I heard from a different friend a couple of years ago who was really right there making this stuff happen, that if Trump had been reelected, it was not even a question that the Saudis were going to join in the first six months of Trump's second term. And now here we are Two years later, and it's a totally open question as to whether the Biden administration can actually pull this together. You know, it was in the not so distant past, actually, that that the Chinese flexed their diplomatic muscle by brokering this this long sought after rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians, who very much do not trust each other. Um, again, for fairly obvious reasons, it's kind of the, the home of Sunni Islam versus the home of Shia Islam. The Saudis are terrified of the Iranian nuclear program and all of that. And in many ways, the Iranian nuclear program is kind of the backdrop for the Abraham Accords in the first place. I mean, it's kind of ironic in a sense, but perhaps without that, you don't actually have this piece. So Anthony Blinken, you know, Rob Malley, who currently has his security clearance pulled and is undergoing investigation. Uh, you know, what an what an absolute piece of you know what that guy is. So they've been all kind of making the rounds to, to Jeddah and Riyadh, trying to kind of broker the Saudis into this deal. On, on the other hand, um, you know, it was actually just this past week you saw announced that the saudis were among the countries here so to join the group of countries known as BRICS, b-r-i-c-s so that would be brazil russia india china and south africa it's kind of a a counter to the g7 if you will and it was literally just like uh, within the past week that it was announced that argentina egypt ethiopia iran saudi arabia and the uae are all joining that kind of russia china India-centric block. So uh, there's a lot of kind of cross currents going on here. I'm not sure that it militates um, in favor of of Biden administration diplomacy, in part because they've just totally butchered the exact approach that the Trump administration took to actually get the Abraham Accords. They've they've appeased the Iranian regime. They paid $6 billion to get five hostages back recently, uh, $1.2 billion per hostage. They've done everything the opposite of what Trump has done here. And you know, if nothing else, it's just kind of a, a stark reminder the fact that we're still having a Saudi conversation while the Saudis, the Emiratis are now joining with the Russians and the Chinese and this other thing. It's kind of just a, a general time to kind of step out and remember that for all of our domestic policy woes here in America, and there obviously are many, the Biden administration has really been kind of a, a, a paragon of idiocy as well when it comes to the global stage. Um, and I don't really have much more to add than that. So I'm kind of just curious for everyone's thoughts.
2: So I, I'm, you know, this is not necessarily my portfolio, but but the, 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 the one question that, that I have that I'm really curious about is whether um, a non-Trump sort of Republican administration could make some of the same uh, progress and inroads as it relates to sort of Middle East foreign policy that Trump can. Because I as, as sort of a new, before being president, someone of a New York right-leaning liberal, um, I didn't see Trump as particularly ideological as it relates to some of these issues, and I think his sort of deal-making instincts were such that he, he'd go talk to you know Kim Jong Un or you know head of North Korea. He, he'd talk to Saudi. It seems like he would talk to anyone, and I and I wonder whether one of the other Republican candidates or any other conservative is in a position to do that, and in that way make the type of progress that he made with, with the Abraham Accords? Not a question to anyone in particular, but that's just the first thing that came to mind. I,
3: I, I think it's a really good question. Um, I, I'm also not my wheelhouse in foreign policy. Um, but I, I want to, to note just two observations. Um, one, we were told, and by we, I mean the general public, cause again, this is not my, my forte, um we were told that it was impossible to bring any kind of stability and peace to the middle east without solving the israeli palestinian conflict that was a often repeated truism that came from sort of the foreign policy establishment um in washington dc that turned out to be you know for lack of a better term bullcrap right um and just to to return to emily's point about the debate for a moment. Right. That is just the smallest example of things that forgetting for a moment where one stands sort of ideologically or what what commitments in in terms of the world uh, one thinks America should or shouldn't make. There are just some some truisms and things that were spoken by by both sides, Republicans and Democrats for three decades that were obviously disproved. And this is true on the domestic sphere as well. And I think that all plays into the the dynamic that Emily was pointing to where, you know what, if you're Mike Pence and if you're, um, you know, Nikki Haley did the same finger wagging thing to Vivek about, um, you know, oh, like you have no foreign policy experience and it shows if you think you can stand on foreign policy experience or really experience in the American government, uh, stand before the American people and stand on that experience at the last 30 years of um, establishment or the establishment or the Republican or the Democratic Party. I think you're going to be very sadly disappointed with how little punch or even how much reverse blowback you get for trying to essentially point to your experience as a reason why people should listen to you going forward. I don't I don't think that that on that stage there was a lot of grappling with how much tru- trust the average American has completely lost. Uh, in, in that kind of just pointing to and said, well, I have 30 years of
1: experience in the State Department. Yeah. Uh, how much trust the average American and then also our allies have lost. And that was uh, repeatedly something being blamed on Donald Trump. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, by the end of the Biden administration, we're also on the anniversary right now of the, uh, the, the totally botched Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, just another example of the Biden administration flubbing foreign policy to tragic and disastrous uh, consequences, and so, I, I mean, it, if it, by the end of the Biden administration, it, it actually may turn out that uh, of all the things, you know, Trump's unorthodox foreign policy, where he had warring factions, the kind of neocon John Bolton's going at it with. Uh, Michael Anton uh, and and others, and you have sort of Jared Kushner in the mix um, with a, a similarly kind of outside the box lack of political experience perspective. Uh, that was that that may that may actually produce more compelling results than the the Biden doctrine, whatever on earth that actually is. Uh, so I, I think these are all really really worthwhile questions um, that are are not panning out uh, to the best for Joe Biden so far.
0: All right. Let's transition to our final thoughts. Who wants to get us started?
1: Um, just
3: talking about all the things that happened since our our uh, last episode. Um, one of those things, of course, was the interview with Trump. Besides the debate, and I didn't want to touch on that for reasons of as of actually media, the underlying um, sort of media war uh, between Tucker Carlson and and any kind of like independent media streaming on X, whatever. Uh, I can't believe I just said X. It must be part of the work now. Um, Anyway, uh, and and this sort of primetime formalized debate with questions from a mainstream outlet uh, that are perhaps not actually very close to uh, what what voters uh, would really like to hear, what will distinguish the the Republican candidates. Um, I am an unabashed partisan for independent media, um, in, and I really want to actually, in criticizing this interview. Um, want to set the bar something that um delano is part of and and um, all power to him for that but uh, the the blaze media tv um well, candidate which trump also did not participate in um i thought those questions from tucker when he was interviewing each one of those candidates were on point um they they really distinguished the candidates in a way that the voters would really care about and then the commentary afterwards from delano and others um was was very much you know knowing what time it is and, and distinguishing the candidates on things like corporate power right foreign um, policy perspective. These are these are actually, um, I think, the, the future of the Republican Party. These are the questions that will determine the future of the Republican Party. Um, and so that on that backdrop, I would like to say that the interview with Trump, I thought, was an absolute embarrassment. Um, and actually, it wasn't Trump for once that was causing the uh, unseriousness. It was Tucker Carlson. Um, and again, I say this as a fan. Uh, I really liked all the questions he asked the other candidates. But uh, the first question he asked is about Jeffrey Epstein and whether Bill Barr covered up Jeffrey Epstein's potential murder. Right. Um, I I don't know what happened with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and, but even if one was convinced that this is, you know, that it was a murder and a cover up, the idea that you would have the Republican frontrunner in front of you for 40 some minutes. Right. And that's the first question. That you think is important to ask. It just confirms, you know, the the idea that independent media is not asking sort of serious-minded questions, right? That it is all about UFOs and and Alex Jones. Um, I thought that was a real misstep. He followed that up by asking Trump whether he thinks he's going to be assassinated by the deep state. That was the second question, right? Um, anyway, I I I was very disappointed in that interview. And actually you could see that even Trump was like, why are you asking me these questions? Like he wanted to talk about you know, whatever the election of 2020, or or um, you know what he's running on for 2024, like you could tell that he kind of wanted to soft pedal his answers to some of these these like sort of outside questions, right? Um, and talk about things that he knew that voters would probably care about more. Um. Anyway, I I was disappointed because exactly because I do think that independent media. I think uh, forgetting for a moment between about the dynamics of the debate uh, about you know which candidates they all support and and. Uh, Trump versus the rest of the field, all of those things, I think on the NatCon side, we can all agree that it would be a good thing to have a real and vigorous independent media. It would be a good thing for Fox News to actually have some mainstream competition on the right, um, because even if, you, if Fox does a good job with some things, right, um, it's it's not good for them not to have competition. It allows them to really um, make ideological decisions that... Uh, they with way too much power, like more power than they they ought to have, right? Uh, because there really isn't this mainstream competitor to Fox on the right. Um, I think that would be good for the Republican landscape. I think it'd be good for the right, um, and I think it'd be good for the country to have uh, the 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 dominance of cable media um, go down. And I know Emily has much to say about that. But um, anyway, I was disappointed in this interview for that for that reason, um, and I was disappointed in Tucker that he he would take this opportunity, right, this huge spotlight to have the, as we've said, a 40 point leader on the Republican side who's under indictment. Right. And then to sort of throw it away on on Internet ephemera, uh, to me, was um, a really, really terrible decision. So sorry, Tucker. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I really didn't. I, I really didn't. I didn't appreciate that. I thought it would could have been a huge moment for independent media, and that interview could have taken over everything else um, because of, of it being Trump and because of the dynamic of the, within the Republican Party and everything else, and it could have actually gotten everyone to tune in um, uh, to uh, to X to Twitter streaming, mm-hmm. right, instead of cable. And I think he blew it.
1: I think that's a really interesting contrarian argument um, because most people seem to be like very pleased with Tucker's interview and maybe they're pleased with the interview just happening rather than the content of the interview. I I did notice in Oliver Anthony's song. One of the reasons people say it's Q adjacent and by people. I mean, uh, media creatures uh, have been
3: clever miners miners thing.
1: Yes, denounce. Yeah, exactly. Denouncing it as as Q adjacent is that he alludes to Jeffrey Epstein. And so my my sort of gentle counterpoint to Inez would be that I, I think the Epstein case is one that actually does matter to like the everyday person, but it doesn't get to their sort of material concerns. And, and that is one thing I think. And, and I, I would have to go back and, and like rewatch or reread the Tucker interview to be specific on this. But I actually, what you're saying, Inez, really resonates because I think a, a big problem that uh, not just the new right has, but anybody who sort of participates in these uh, kind of abstract political conversations is that uh, just sort of trafficking these abstractions in comfortable sort of media jobs. Uh, think tank jobs. No offense, Delano, um, puts you at a distance uh, in in ways that it's hard to control uh, from you know, the the material needs, the material concerns of the everyday person. And that's not to say the abstractions are not uh, you know relevant to those concerns, but it is to say it's just easy uh, to to get caught up in these debates about integralism and whatever else, and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, UFOs and Jeffrey Epstein. And not, you know, to use a bad pun, come back down to earth and talk about uh, grocery costs, interest rates, um, you know, kids' schools, et cetera, et cetera. And I definitely see that on the new right a little bit. Not a little bit. I definitely see that on the new right. I'll just end the sentence there. Uh, and I think it's it's always worth a reminder to all of us that it's important to be sort of uh, in tune and front and center in our minds to have those material concerns of the average everyday American front and center in our minds, um, and to not treat some of these abstract discussions like they are the big news of the day, just because uh, they happen to be great fodder for us to fight uh, libertarians or whomever else.
0: <laughs> so, well, I'll oh, go ahead, Don, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say, no, no offense taken, Emily. I'll oh. Uh, before coming to to think tank world, I spent almost 15 years in local government in DC. So I I'm much more familiar with uh, you know public housing projects and going to community meetings and civic associations than I am with sort of the the inner workings of, uh, of DC think tanks. But that being said, I wanted to come back to some I said you know during the opening segment, which is uh, the ways in which Black voters in this country are discussed on both the left and the right and, and the ways in which tragedies like the Jacksonville shooting are used for specific purposes. And, and last year with the blaze, I penned a piece where I talked about the Selma syndrome, uh, which is obviously a reference to Selma, Alabama and and bloody Sunday and Edmund Pettus bridge. And and really what I sort of marked out in in that piece is how particularly progressives, um, use America's very real and, you know, bloody history on race as a tool of emotional manipulation and, and social control, particularly for black voters. Um, and Stelma syndrome sort of fuses that history with elements of the Stockholm syndrome and, and, and the way it, it's actually, uh, but, uh, sort of materializes is with many black voters. I'm not saying all or even for most, but many seeing a fusion between their very real political interests and the survival of the Democratic Party so that um, any threats to Democrats or Uncle Joe is, are seen as a, a real sort of threat to their uh, very being and existence. And and when the left weaponizes terms like systemic racism, racism and particularly white supremacy, um, and they use those terms as catch-alls for anything that they don't like, um, that is one of the ways in which that Selma syndrome sort of replicated in our political culture. So when you hear people talk about voting laws in Georgia being Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Eagle or James Crow Esquire or Jimmy Crow, these are all ways in which the left says, we know exactly which buttons to push with our most loyal base and we will push them anytime we want um, in order to, to keep them where they are. And, and, and let, let me say something like this is extremely manipulative just imagine if you were a person who, who took in a child, a runaway, you found the kid at a, at a Greyhound bus station. And anytime you, and you brought the child into your home, you fed, you clothed them, you say, I'm going to love you for the rest of your life. But anytime that child misbehaved or, or um, disappointed you, not even misbehaved, they disappointed you. You told the kid, you know what, if you don't cut it out, I'm going to take you back to that bus station where I found you. You know exactly what you're doing when you, when you push that button. Um, so I, I, I find that type of behavior on the left to be despicable, quite, quite honestly. Uh, and I think any discussion appealing uh, or appealing to black voters in a, in a broader sense from Republicans has to take account of, of that particular dynamic on the left. That being said, Republicans have a ton of work to do as it relates to messaging, uh, political rhetoric, and public policy if they want to garner the black vote, but that's one of the things that has to be reconciled and dealt with directly if if the GOP wants to see any growth on their side.
0: So I saw that Saurabh Amari had a very nice column for the New Statesman, the, the British publication. The, the, the piece came out maybe on Sunday or Monday, so just a couple of days ago or so. And it, it was basically, it was about kind of Trump's grand return to Twitter X whatever, um, this is Trump's return to that platform in the Elon Musk era, and SORAP has a take on Elon Musk that I think relatively few on our side share, but I happen to be one of them, which is I, I am not even remotely convinced, actually, that the current iteration of Twitter or X is actually better than what preceded it, despite the fact that what preceded it was terrible for a million different reasons. Now it's true that there is more speech, but uh, I, I, I Frank, I frankly think the algorithms are just as messed up as ever. I I know that I and many others continue to be shadow banned. Worse than that, there's all these kind of super gimmicky kind of monetization stuff. Now it's just a lot more complicated in many ways. Elon kind of always seems to be at the center of it all. It seems to be kind of like a self-seeking attention kind of thing. Anyway, all all that to say, the most important part of Sorab's new statesman piece was when he said something that I I have been saying for basically a year and a half now, since Elon Musk first started flirting with the idea of buying Twitter, which is just this fear that kind of the right having this either symbolic or real, depending on your perception of Elon Musk, but the right having this savior figure to restore online speech will necessarily have the unfortunate side effect, I think, of damping down uh, the right's eagerness to pursue many of the big tech issues that we've discussed for many years now, because we kind of have our safe space. And it happens to be kind on of the place where, you know, think tankers, journalists, people in the political class more generally happen to go to go and break and make their news. And, you know, I wrote a column last December saying the exact same thing, actually. I said, quote, celebrate Elon Musk, but don't lose sight of big tech structural problems. I wrote that column last December now. And, I, and I'm really worried about this, frankly, because I don't think that any of those structural problems have have actually gone away you know many of what we've been saying much of what we've been saying for the past few years about section 230 antitrust common carriage you know all the various types of remedies when it comes you know i mean hold twitter x whatever aside they're a minor player at the end of the day i mean the overwhelming majority this kind of the irony of the tucker trump stuff right the overwhelming majority of republican voters the overwhelming majority of americans are not on twitter i mean like you know the, the four of us are because you know, we happen to work in politics and we, and we we produce content for a living, among other things. And like this is where we live and breathe, whatever. But Twitter is totally irrelevant in the grand scheme of things here. And the fact that many of kind of the rights opinion makers inhabit this now kind of new Elon Musk driven safe space of sorts, I, I think has really kind of damped down the, the the eagerness or or the zeal, I guess, to to actually pass legislation or take administrative action in the Republican administration. To do things like get common carriage for Google, Facebook platforms that are frankly just much, much, much more important in the grand scheme of things. So I thought that was a very astute point by Sora. I've been saying the same thing for a while, and I was I was happy to see it. So I guess my message to those who have made it to the end of the, of this podcast is to not lose sight of the finish line when it comes to the rights uh, stance vis a vis big tech in particular. But for now, we have reached the end of our show. So on behalf of and of Inez. Delano, and Emily. I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.